Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. I mean, it was just time to turn the AC off, right? And open the window. I don't know. It's pretty muggy out today. It's a little muggy, but here's the thing. So I made duck last night, ladies and gentlemen. I cooked duck, and I'm really proud of Was it part of those meal kits? Yes, it was from uh, a meal kit, but I cooked duck. It was an actual duck breasts, and I made it. And by the way, it was splendid. It really turned out great. And, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just really excited because never made that. Well, you are a little bit. That's okay. That's, I, I, I'm learning some skills. But two things. One is every time I cook, I set off the smoke alarm. <laughs> and second of all, uh, Dana really complains about the number of dishes I make when I cook. Because I do make a lot of, I, I, you know, it requires a lot of things for me to make stuff. So, and this was the most complicated meal I've made. So anyway, made the duck. It was a round resounding hit with Dana, which means a lot to me, but we noticed that all evening there was a real strong duck smell in the house. It was very gamey. So it was time to open the windows for us anyway, just to clear it out a little bit and just be glad that you don't live next door to one of those long island duck farms <laughs> yeah, that would i wouldn't want to be around actual ducks i did a couple stories on the history of duck farming and man it sounds like that was pretty stanky i'm thinking yeah there was one in in Mauritius that i used to drive by all the time and it was just foul so to speak it's <laughs> very foul and joe you mentioned the smoke alarm and it's an old joke but it was true in my household growing up we always knew when dinner was ready when the smoke alarm went off. <laughs> wow, you guys had smoke alarms? You're so much younger than me. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's nice because I do this in part as a gesture of goodwill towards Dana, who, who I say, you know, let me cook a couple of days a week. I'll do this. Um, if, as long as I have a plan, I can do it. And I, there's two steps to the process. One is how much she appreciates the meal. And the second is, what did you do to my kitchen? Um, it's always splattered with grease and I, because I have a tendency when I'm frying stuff to turn the heat too high, I think. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So with us, with us this week, we have Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. Also here with us is Catherine Manu. Hi, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I'm Catherine Manu, sometimes known as Georgie, and I'm the co-publisher of the Express News Group. And also with us today is Brendan O'Reilly. Hi, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I am the features editor. And we have Joe Shaw here. Good morning, Joe. Uh, why'd your voice drop an octave? I don't understand. Hi, Joe. How are you? <laughs> Did I be offended or, or, or was that? Uh, yes. Hi, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Sorry to offend. <laughs> and, uh, my name's Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. It's interesting, the meal service thing isn't something that we're into because we cook, but at the height of COVID in the beginning of March, 
we did sign up for a series of those services. We tried probably, I think, three different services, which we were able to get like discount codes for. But more importantly, in March, mid to late March into April, we didn't want to go to the grocery store and keeping food in supply was like kind of challenging out here. So it was like a great solution to the food shortages that we were seeing on the East End. But the waste was something that really bothered me. Did you save the box? I, I saw something on Facebook the other day that said, you know, you're getting old when you have arguments with yourself about whether to save boxes because they're really <laughs> good boxes. Yeah, well, we, we have a kid in college now, so we need to save boxes. Yeah, I'm curious if, does anybody need a little package to protect two eggs? Because I, I have that. They, they send eggs in a little protective package, which I have eggs. I don't know why they feel like they have to send eggs. Once grocery stores had food, again, in, you know, regular quantities, so I guess that was what, like early, mid-May, we said goodbye, food service boxes. You know, it's also, we started seeing local produce out here, um, you know, starting to pop up and we do place a Baldor order, um, which I've really enjoyed actually. It's the restaurant um, food delivery service that started doing home delivery, which is very smart of them. Um, but we get all of our vegetables from Balsam Farm in Amagansett and our eggs um, and chicken from Iacono Farm in East Hampton. Oh, I still, I still hit the farm stands, don't worry. I think this is a good segue to get into what we're really supposed to be talking about. With which is how our perceptions have changed a lot since March. And Georgie, I think you just brought up the whole interesting point. Like in March, we didn't even know where we were gonna get food, much less toilet paper and things like that. And I just think it's really interesting now that we're in September and looking at going back into the colder months again, reflecting on what it was like. And I kind of forgot about that, about how weird it was. It was sort of like a perpetual snowstorm in the beginning or a hurricane where the shelves were just bare and you couldn't get anything in March. And then summer came and everything sort of lightened up a little bit with the farm stands opening and, and then the people started arriving. So I just wondered if you guys wanna share some of your thoughts about how we have shifted as far as our reality since March. So I think that, you know, starting with, you know, just what it felt like. So we actually six months tomorrow, which is September 12th, Six months ago, I pulled my children from school a couple of days before their school would officially close. And we had started basically sheltering in place at that point. Um, I hadn't gone into the office in a week. And there was this like fear in the air because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And the cases were just so scary in New York and the numbers were going higher and higher. And we didn't know if our medical infrastructure was going to hold like you said, grocery stores, you know, toilet paper, paper towels aside, you couldn't find chicken breast, you know? I mean, it just was really challenging. And then even just going into said grocery store felt like, you know, you were potentially going to war. You know, we just didn't know anything. It sort of brought out the worst in people too. Like there were some nasty people, you know, like really hoarding and it was, it was a panic. I mean, I remember that panicked feeling of having to go to the grocery store and, and you know, trying to get as much as you could to last as long as you could. And, and it was, I mean, you, you talk about a war zone. It, it felt like that because you saw the panic in everybody else's eyes too. Everybody wearing masks and gloves. And I remember one couple and they were like, the guy's like, 
you go get this and I'll go get that. And, you know, and, and, and they're, and they're running to, you know, to get stuff. And it was, and it was just like, what's going on? It's interesting because we're having this conversation on nine 11 and I feel like we have had two moments in our lifetimes when the world changed in an instant. And I had always heard stories about, you know, the war and world war two and, and Pearl Harbor and things like that, where in, in a day, everything goes topsy turvy. And I feel like we have lived that now twice and, um, and, and we're still in it um, for this because I, the question I have for you guys is if we see a spike in the fall, which a lot of experts think we may, are we prepared, are we better prepared for it now and we may handle it better than we did? Or is it going to be just uh, a body blow after getting this far? Is it going to feel like we got this far back and, and then we're, we're returned. I mean, what do you think, how do you think we're going to handle it as a, as a region, as a nation? What do you think? I think there was so much unknown back in March that people, I don't want to say overreacted, but <clears throat> people reacted to any eventuality. And, and it was like, we don't know. So we're just going to, you know, we're going to take every single precaution and, and, you know, and that's, that's great. But I think, we know more now, the medical community knows more now, the government officials hopefully know more now. Um, I, I don't know that you, even if there is a spike, I don't know that you would see that shutdown. You would see maybe some regional, you know, fallback positions to, to different phases or, or whatever. Um, I, I think schools are up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen there. And, and I think there's every possibility that, you know, that schools, if, if there was a, a, a dramatic spike that schools could close again. But um, I, I think, I, I think, yes, I think we're better prepared. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that, that we would handle it hopefully a little differently, not better, but differently. I also think, like you said, in terms of like the knowledge we have, I mean, in the very beginning of March, nobody was wearing masks in New York. And it wasn't, I remember I flew back from California at the end of February from, and we saw one person wearing a mask in the airport in Orange County. And I looked at Gavin and I was like, oh, are we really there yet? Well, now we know, yes, we were there yet. But at the time it felt like, oh, that might be an overreaction. Um, and now I think, you know, people do know that masks can be really effective and you know, are, are being really careful with their personal hygiene and how they behave around other people. And my hope at least is that, you know, whatever spike we see is diminished by just that, um, by just that knowledge and hopefully enough people following these basic rules. But now it's of course devolved into a political battle where there are certain states and parts of this country where they don't wear masks and they feel like that's an infringement on their rights. And, and um, I think that that's gonna be an interesting dynamic. It's, it's weird, it's like, it almost feels like it's turned into a civil war, whether you're a mask wearer or not, you know? I wonder if, I, I think there are pockets where that's true in this country, but it's becoming less and less justifiable, I think. I don't think there's a whole lot you can hang that on. And I keep going back to the 80%, uh, the experts say that 80% is the tipping point. If 80% of the country wears masks, then you can allow 20% of the country to be idiots. 
or to be to take this as a political statement and and it doesn't matter because if 80 percent are wearing masks that's the tipping point when the virus goes down instead of going up i think the problem is if you do have 80 percent of people wearing masks it might be 100 percent wearing them in one place and only 10 percent wearing them in another part of the country you know what i mean like it's not 80 percent across the board it's like there's different pockets where it's all or nothing right I, yeah, I was I was going to say I I wonder if if we're if our perception of that is is skewed a little bit because I think New York State um, a lot of people are wearing masks most people are wearing masks I you know I I, I saw uh, Greg Weiner, um last week and he had um, he's living in um, he's living in, in Virginia now and and he had he had driven up to pick up some stuff. And and we talked and, and he had said that, you know, driving through, he's in New York State, he says it feels like everybody's wearing masks, but outside of New York State, he said just, you know, a lot of people just aren't. And I think that's why New York State has seen the results that, that we've seen and why the numbers stay so low here. That was the, the consensus of the people I asked uh, last week in our Q&A. I went around to some medical experts and some local officials about how New York has been so successful. I mean, it, you know, when you look across the country, it's it's pretty remarkable how successful New York has been, uh, all things considered. Uh, and that was the consensus. It really does just come down to the simple things. It's mask wearing and it's social distancing. And I, I keep, you know, we were talking about the initial reaction to this. I keep remembering in the parking lot at Stop and Shop, uh, a guy who was wiping down every item that he had just purchased in the trunk of his car. And I had a conversation with him, which by the way, was kind of an interesting thing because in those early days, you struck up conversations with strangers in a way that you never did before. And I think the masks helped with that. It's, it's, it's a weird thing because we were all in it together and there was sort of that feeling of, of, of camaraderie from that. But I, I remember thinking two things. One was that I thought that was a little, a little much. Um, I, and, and I think that's probably been proven that that was a concern, but you're probably not going to catch the virus from an item that was on a shelf in a store. But I also remember thinking, you know, that's really resourceful. And, and it's nice that people are being willing to be resourceful. And he was completely pleasant about it. And uh, this was just his way of dealing with the stress of of the crisis as well i think and and whatever makes you feel comfortable right yeah exactly exactly i splurged the other day and got some chinese takeout and i went to pick up the the chinese takeout and you can't go into any of the chinese takeout restaurants anymore they all have windows out front where you you pay and they they slip your food through a, a window but there was a woman ahead of me and she had a spray bottle and it was from the smell, it was it was clear that it was alcohol, and she just kept spraying alcohol all over her her body, just everywhere. And I was kind of thinking the same thing. That seems a little odd to me, but you know what? If it made her feel comfortable and and gave her the ability to go out and pick up her food, then you know, then good for her. And you don't know who's dealing with like immune compromised symptoms, you know? Or exactly. It's um. That's the other thing. I think it's really hard to pass judgment on what other people choose to do, especially if they're overly cautious. You know, they may be battling cancer or something like that. You just never know. We just had that conversation in our house this last week as our children started school today um, at spring school in East Hampton. And we 
live with my mother-in-law and she's older and my parents live probably 10 minutes away and they're older and they've been with our kids and that's not going to be the case for a couple weeks now. I mean, they can be together and they will be, but masked and socially distant and in a different way than they've spent the last couple of months, you know, when things felt safer, but just with the school situation being an unknown, you know, that's the decision that we all had to make. And what I kept saying over and over again, as they were like, we're sorry, we're sorry, was everybody has to deal with what is their comfort level when it comes to this. And if, if you're still wearing an N95 everywhere you go and gloves and are bathing in, you know, hand sanitizer, but that's what you're doing to get through the stress of this, then, you know, you be you and, you know, as long as you're, as long as you're being you and not putting other people at risk, I, I really don't have a, um, I don't have a bandwidth for people who are just, you know, callously putting other people at risk who, like you said, could be, you know, immune compromised, um, you know, or a senior that's really scared of getting Imagine COVID. Imagine how long it took to get the message out that you wear a mask to protect others, not to protect yourself. It, it took months for that to sink in for a lot of people. And I think some, some people still don't get that. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. And, and the other thing that I find interesting is this week, uh, calm is, is a keyword when we talk about the virus and whether or not, uh, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to take a left turn into politics here, but one of the things that I, I thought was interesting was the reaction from the public was generally calm. I mean, I think we all freaked out. I think we all were panicked. I think we all had stress, but but there weren't riots in the street. We didn't see people rushing. I mean, certainly we saw people buying up toilet paper and things like that, but I think the reaction was fairly calm and fairly, I, I think we hunkered down and did what we had to do for uh, to get through it. And I think we're still doing that and I, to, to a degree. You know, it's become, pretty popular to talk badly about the United States these days. But I think we've, I, I think we as a people have really kind of dealt with this crisis uh, pretty admirably. There are exceptions, of course, and there are uh, always room for improvement, but uh, it could have been worse. It really could have been worse. Well, you made the comparison to 9-11 to, to and today, you know, the anniversary of 9-11. And I think that that there certainly was early on back in March and April and maybe May, there was that that attitude of we're going to get through this together. There was a unity. There was um, that fight, that American spirit, you know, we're, you know, we'll, we'll overcome this. I, I think, unfortunately, we've lost a little of that with the politics that, you know, that Annette was talking about, where, where people kind of got split on, on opinions. And for whatever reason, I don't want to delve into the politics either from, you know, from one side or, or the other. Um, but I think that, you know, the, in, indicative of, of the easing of the numbers, you know, some of that spirit was lost and the politics came back in. And I think that's, that's unfortunate. I feel like though in New York, there still is, I mean, and of course that's where we are. And so it's the easiest perspective for us to draw from, but there still is this, you know, as Cuomo says it, New York strong mentality. Like we muscled through early on the worst of COVID um, and because of the way that we all behaved and because of the way healthcare responded, you know, we got through, you know, a really bad peak and we're still here. Um, you know, I'll tell you, I had a conversation with somebody 
this week about this. And I think Cuomo, uh, the governor, played a big role in that because when you have strong leadership consistently on message from the start and the local leadership followed that message, everybody was on message. When you have that kind of leadership, uh, it, it really helps you get through a crisis like this. No, I had a friend report just this week that she was in a grocery store parking lot where someone else walking in the opposite direction pulls down their mask, turns towards her and coughs on purpose. And <gasps> I think that's that kind of person where they wear the mask inside the grocery stores because that's the only way they're allowed inside the stores. But they consider everyone else that believes that masks are effective to be sheeple. And they want to not only criticize those people, they want to go as far as physically assault them by coughing in their faces because they do believe it's a hoax. They do believe masks don't work. They believe that masks deprive your brain of oxygen, even though uh, surgeons wear them for 12 hours at a clip. Uh, it, it just amazes me that there's still, it's not 1% of the population that thinks that way. It's a significant amount of the population that thinks that masks are a hoax and the virus is a hoax and that you know the survival rate of COVID uh, which killed 200,000 people in the United States uh, should be focused on more by the media. But meanwhile, you know, we're all pausing today to remember the 3,000 people that died on 9-11, but then we're being told that the media is overly focused on the 200,000 people that died from COVID. I think when this was politicized, that was really the turn in the wrong direction. And I think it hurt us a lot that, that the minute this became something that had any kind of a political edge to it. We lost ground. And I think, I think it's a, it's a big part of why we are where we are and uh, instead of in a better place. That being said on, on the East end and in New York state um, in general, we're in a pretty, pretty good spot right now. And we've come through, through the summer and we've made do with, um, you know, at first the restaurants moving to takeout and, and delivery and now some, some indoor seating and the real estate boom on, on the East End. And, um, you know, I, I drive around, uh, you know, a little bit on the weekends sometimes and, and there were elements that really felt like summer in the Hamptons. And, um, and I think that we were all really fearful early on in, in March and in the spring that, you know, that there was just, it was just going to be this huge Great Depression. And I'm not saying everything's rosy. And I know there are a lot of people who aren't working and there's food insecurity and, and, and all that. But I think that um, so far we have rebounded a bit um, local business wise on, on the East End on the South Shore, haven't we? <laughs> Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And I'm wondering, like, what do we think about for the fall? Because it's interesting, because I feel like because so many... Um, people who may have lived in the city have now decided that they want to spend more time out here, either as um, having relocated totally to their what was their second home, that probably the building trades and, and the people who normally maybe would find themselves sort of laid off in the winter are going to be working 
um, and the and the restaurants are going to be able to open up a little bit more indoors. And so I feel like in a way, what's going to be interesting is to see how the next six months or so go, because um, it, it may be that January is not the, the dead month that it always used to be in the past. Yeah, Georgie, does Gavin talk at all about what he's hearing out there from people? Uh, Gavin's our co-publisher, your husband, and uh, he's clearly and in, deeply involved in the advertising side of things. And I'm curious what what he hears from from businesses. I mean, I think that a lot of that will depend on, you know, like we said earlier in the podcast, on if we see this anticipated spike and then on the East End, how big of a spike does that end up being? Because, you know, obviously if there's some big spike, restaurants aren't going to be having indoor service in January, um, you know, but maybe they became a little more nimble in terms of trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves in a takeout model. You know, I think a lot of businesses nationwide, had, including our own, had to start taking a you know, second, third, fourth, fifth look at itself and say, how do we make this work? Um, you know, how do we make our new revenue stream work? How do we diversify um, so that we can outlast this? You start a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which we wanted to do anyway. <laughs> well, that's the thing that's, I think, really interesting is how many industries and, and people have had to sort of um, reinvent themselves in, in a quick way that they would have never been able to do in a normal environment, right? Well, I mean, like you said, the real estate industry has seen a significant boom. I think that you will see trades um, continue to be busy into shoulder and off seasons just because there's so many people here who require significant services. Um, you know, it's hard to recover a loss of early summer months um, if you were a retail establishment or restaurant that had to be closed or partially closed. You know, this is a, a season that people depend on to get them through the rest of the year. Um, you know, and I think that there's a there's a nervous energy that um, if another shutdown happens for some businesses, that will be it. Like they weathered the storm, they got through. But if it like really closes down again, even despite our, you know, burgeoning population, it just won't, it, it won't matter. It'll just be too much. I do think that there's hope though, um, that maybe because of how we are treating the virus so seriously in New York state, at least most of us, um, that, you know, that won't happen. And again, this bigger population will support local business. Um, but again, there's just, there's, there is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we've seen our own business um, take a significant hit in revenues and we've been able to build back up and we're really proud of where we are. Um, but like everybody else, you know, we're looking at an uncertain future and just kind of planning week by week and month by month. And Brendan, the real estate industry is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty optimistic, right? Well, what we're seeing now is that we're post Labor Day. So all those people that rented through Labor Day are moving out. And that means those houses could be going on the market for sale again. In some cases, you have owners that will turn around and rent it to somebody else who wants to be here year round. You have owners that come back after Labor Day themselves and move in. But maybe if they did uh, relocate to Florida or elsewhere, they don't want to get on a plane and come back. They're also seeing that 
the home values have spiked, why wait to sell when the home prices now are as high as they have been in some time? So I think we are going to see a lot more inventory coming on the market after a month or two when inventory was scarce. And when the good inventory is scarce, it's harder to sell a house, right? So these great sales numbers we've been seeing, I think they will continue uh, into September and October. It's going to be interesting to see how long they're sustained for, because what I've heard from a few different agents is that people that were planning on buying in the next two or three years, they're all just buying now. So what does that mean a year from now uh, when those people have bought? Does it, is this extra spike in activity making up for houses that weren't bought the last few years? Or are we getting ahead of ourselves on houses that were going to be bought? And then when things level out, where's that plateau going to be? Is it going to be a low plateau or is it going to be a high plateau? But right now things are popping. They also, I heard a phrase this morning on NPR. Uh, they're, calling the, they're calling us and some other areas that have had spikes, Zoom towns. That, that it's a chance for people to move into very attractive areas to live full-time now and still be able to work remotely since working remotely has now become not only possible but necessary. And I found that kind of intriguing. And I also didn't realize that nationally, that the housing market in general has been really strong. It's been something like uh, house prices nationally are up like 8%. And uh, the only places that are not up are the, 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 this uh, NPR report said New York City and, and San Francisco basically are the two places that are suffering the most. But uh, we are a particularly peak area, but this is, this is a phenomenon that's happening across the country. I think. My sister lives in New York City and she actually just had two months of rent waived in order to renew her lease. That's how desperate the landlords are. Well, you can't evict right now either. There had already been New York State mandates in place, and now the CDC is saying you can't evict people during the pandemic. So we're at this point where somebody could have not been paying rent for six months, but meanwhile, the landlord still has to pay the mortgage in those six months. There have been some uh, foreclosure moratoriums or deferments offered, but this is going to catch up to us eventually. When you have the, the renter that finally gets evicted after not paying for a year, and then the landlord who hasn't been making mortgage payments for a year because they haven't been collecting rent, these things will catch up with us. Yeah, I mean, we've seen actually a, an arrest locally um, regarding somebody who tried to evict a tenant in Springs. Um, and we've seen stuff like this popping up in the police blotter all summer. You know, I think that for renters of housing out here, you know, where we have a affordable housing crisis um, that's now just a total disaster post-COVID. Um, you know, if you're not a renter with a year-round, ideally long-term lease, it's got to be a very scary landscape because we see that the stock is so limited and that, you know, you might be able to stave off an eviction for a few months, but eventually, like Brendan said, it's going to catch up. And nobody is going to be able to afford to rent out here that makes you know, less than $100,000 a year just because you're going to be able to get so much for that rental. Um, I'm very concerned about the ability for the working families on the East End to be able to stay here after this because of this Zoom culture that Joe was talking about where, and we saw this again post 9-11 where there was a group of people from New York that realized they could telecommute or at least they could relocate their families and maybe keep a super small apartment and they could make it work to live out here in this beautiful place 
Um, now we're seeing that in a lot of businesses, this you know Zoom situation can um, serve as enough and you can work remotely. And so of course you're gonna choose to live here. Um, if more and more people are doing that, you know, how are working families gonna be able to do that? I wonder if, and, and this is gonna be, this, this is a big statement, but I, I wonder if we may need to have to start rethinking the hesitancy for local government to build affordable housing for workforce, for, for families, for working families. I think, it, I think we may be crossing a threshold here where I think we've always hesitated. And I know that we as a newspaper have always been wary of high density housing developments uh, that can change the character of a community. There's no question. But I, I really think it's, it may be the only solution moving forward to try and come up with some affordable housing just for, for you know, any workers uh, at all. But not, and, and we're talking about nurses and, and, and police officers and, and teachers as much as we're talking about laborers. I mean, I think, it's, I think they're all crucial to the local economy. And if, if the affordable housing crisis that we already had becomes a catastrophe, as, as I, I agree with you, Georgie, I think we're there. Um, I, I think it's gonna be about the, the survival of a healthy community. We're not gonna be able, I mean, I think that the traffic uh, that, and you know, talking about traffic out here is boring because you know, we all do it and it's, but it, it, it is worse and it doesn't seem like it should be worse this year, but I think we saw uh, some indication that it was actually even maybe worse than last year. Um, and I think that's all because of nobody being afford, be able to afford to, to live here and, and so many people having to commute uh, just to do basic summer jobs, like the, the jobs that, that keep this place going. I mean, they, they talk about needing thousands of units in both towns to just satisfy the need pre-COVID. And look, I mean, East Hampton Town, I think has done an admirable job of trying to put up as many different affordable housing developments in these manor style houses as they can, you know, throughout the town. Um, you know, we're seeing one come to completion on Montauk Highway in Amagansett, the housing authority has been working on. Um, they've tried in both towns to incentivize the building of affordable apartments like, oh, okay, so if we can't do a big apartment building and we don't really have enough lands to do enough of these housing developments, maybe people will build affordable units if we incentivize it. But, you know, people aren't jumping on that bandwagon in large numbers at all. And, um, you know, I just think at this point, it's going to be such a crisis. I don't know that these towns, unless they're just willing to kiss their volunteer, um, you know, fire departments and ambulance corps goodbye, um, unless, you know, you're willing to look at incredible infrastructure to deal with traffic, I don't know if you're gonna really have much of a choice but to explore some high density projects. Again, we're talking about thousands of units just to satisfy the need that was there prior to COVID. I think a nice first step would be to try to do like what Sag Harbor has done in, on, on the other village main streets, which is to turn up, you know, get some of those apartments on second floors. You know, I think that would bring a lot of life. I know it's all about, a lot of it's about this, the um, septic systems, but 
you know, if you think about it, if you had a lot of people living above Main Street in both in Southampton and East Hampton, they would make it much more vibrant. And by their nature, if you have a two-bedroom apartment or whatever, that's going to be more affordable than a five-bedroom house for year-round. This is the key. And we saw it in uh, both of the two uh, East Hampton and Southampton village elections. Sewers were part of the conversation in both of those villages. And Sag Harbor has the, the uh, edge on other villages because they have a sewer system. West Hampton Beach is putting one in now. Uh, and I think that, that to go with that, the, one of the keys is if those villages move forward with plans for septics, they need to figure out a way to really incentivize uh, apartments above those, those uh, buildings on, on Main Street. And it's, it's hard. Um, some of them already have. I mean, they talked about in East Hampton Village, there are places where there are apartments on second floors that haven't been used as apartments for years. And it might give them a chance to open them back up again. Uh, but I, those are those are drips and drabs. And I think the two towns have both built some uh, affordable housing complexes uh, in the last couple of years. And that's uh, laudable, but I think it's got to step up. I really do. The apartment I have on my house is built through East Hampton Town's affordable housing program. And so I'm limited if I ever rent it. My mother-in-law lives there now. But if I ever rent it, I'm very limited in what I can offer that apartment for. Um, and it has to be a year-round resident. And it is actually, by East End standards, an affordable rent. You know, our our entry levels reporters might be able to swing. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that you have to start putting some of those um, rental restrictions in because like Bill said, otherwise it's like, well, you too can live on Southampton's Tony Main Street in this cute studio for $2,000, $3,000 a month. I think if you're building apartments above stores on Main Streets too, that you've got to you, you might need to come in and try to control the rent a little bit because you have the potential of them being, uh, you know, a chic factor where, you know, people start, oh, I want to live, you know, downtown and, and those apartments, I mean, the rents could just go sky high on those. I think what's interesting, back when in 1880, when um, Joseph Faze brought his watch case factory from New Jersey to Sag Harbor, part of what he, in addition to building that big factory building that is now luxury condos, he also built a series of worker houses all over Sag Harbor. Um, you know, even back then, he understood what he needed to do. Um, and of course, those worker houses now go for 2.5 million, you know. But I just think it was interesting that that whole idea of like housing your workers was something that a lot of the um, a lot of business owners took seriously in the 19th century and really came up with solutions back then. And I just think it's funny how backwards we've become. Just over the last 20 years, we've wrung our hands about the problem and never taken any real substantive steps to address it. I think back to, to 20 years ago when I was a reporter working for the Western edition of the press and they wanted to build two affordable houses in Flanders and I was covering that area and I went up to a community meeting um, and, and there's all these residents from Flanders just objecting. A lot of them were objecting because of racial issues or, or, or whatever, um, but, but just not in my backyard. And I think that's just been so prevalent for, for years and years. And, and, you know, you have to overcome a lot of that too. And I think that goes back to what Joe was saying is, is maybe some of the, um, you know, so the, the local governments need to just come in and say enough is enough and let's, 
let's do something here. Okay, I gotta go, guys. I gotta take advantage. I've got like three hours. I've got yard sale to prepare for. Yay! Good luck. Ugh, I hate this so much. I hate yard sale. I also am noticing just what an unflattering camera angle this is for me. I look, I look like a thumb. <laughs> this is not good. This is really a bad look for me. If I go up here, it's at least I look like a normal human being. All right. Goodbye from the thumb. <laughs> Bye, Bye, Mr. Thumb. <laughs>